0: Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a MacBook screen with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us for this episode to discuss all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism is the venerable Vernon Gibbs. Welcome, Vernon.
1: Glad to be here, and thanks to you guys, I had a great night of dreaming. (laughs) Uh, I had a very close encounter with the... uh, the the wife and grown daughters of a famous former president of the United States. And they knew I was going to be on this show. (laughs) And I wanted to know all about my adventures. So it it was a very enticing close encounter on the beach. And I woke up smiling. So thank you very much for inviting me. I'm I'm very glad to be
0: here. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, we'll dedicate this episode to... (laughs) the president's daughters, um, (laughs) whichever president it was.
1: They remain unnamed.
0: (laughs) For anyone who doesn't know, Vernon began writing about uh, rock and soul music as a student at New York's Columbia University in, I think, 1970, possibly earlier. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: started a little earlier uh, because I wanted to get into the underground scene. It was just a subway's ride away from my prep school on the Upper East Side. I, I went to prep school, thanks to the goodness and uh, greatness and the money of uh, people who had uh, way more money than I did. Uh, there was a program called A Better Chance, and it picked out kids who showed promise and who lived on the other side of the tracks. Actually, there was a subway there, so I I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it was on the other side of the tracks, but it was the G train. I took the G train to Manhattan every day for prep school. From where? From from Brooklyn. From I lived Brooklyn. in Brooklyn, yeah. So that was the crosstown train, as Rod Stewart, I think, would sing about it. <laughs> I took that to prep school, and after four years of that, I, uh, I got into Columbia, and I decided I'd start my writing career early uh, because I had a teacher who made all the difference in my life. Uh, she encouraged me to be a writer. I think one of the first things I wrote that attracted her attention was a description of Muhammad Ali beating someone to a pulp. I don't remember who it was, but uh, that that caught her eye and she said that I I could be a writer and I'd be a good writer. And she encouraged me to, to keep doing it. And so I started writing in high school and decided that I'd go into being a music journalist. And I never considered myself a critic because even though I played instruments, I didn't think I was good enough to criticize anyone else. So I became a music journalist, basically to get free tickets to concerts and get free albums, and to <clears throat> to meet women. And, uh...
0: Clearing up the front there. <laughs> <Yeah. clears> throat there, yeah, and to <laughs> to meet
1: women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all of that worked out very well. It worked out according oh, to good. plan, and and yeah, especially the women part. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, by the time I was in, uh, a senior in high school, I was already being published by some of the underground papers, including, uh, Rock Magazine. So I transitioned right into that in college, going to Columbia. They have a very well known daily newspaper published by students. And the Columbia Spectator started publishing my work, and then it just kind of steamrolled from there. I, I kept getting, offers from magazines. I started going to all the parties and I'd meet editors there and and they had seen my work somewhere else and they would ask me to write for them. And uh, eventually I I landed a steady monthly column with Crawdaddy called Soul Man. Mm -hmm. And then the other big one was getting the monthly assignment from Essence Magazine, yes. which, by the way, I named. I'm going to go on record as saying I named Essence Magazine. Wow, Never, wow really? Yeah, I, I certainly did. They, they were going to call it, and this should go on the record, they were going to call it Sapphire, which okay. is the name of a Amos and Andy character. And we were both working on our pilot issues. I was going to start a magazine with my buddies, and we were both working on our pilot issue they were sapphire and i one day i came up with the name essence that should be the name of our magazine we were working for time life uh, we weren't working for them they were giving mm-hmm. us space in their building to put our, our dummy issue together and when i came up with the name i thought it was so brilliant i went running down the hall and told time life the, the name that we had come up with and they told sapphire magazine <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last I saw of our name. They, they basically just took the name. And being only 18 or 19 at the time, we didn't really know what to do about it. So, you know, I said, OK, that's fine. No problem. Let them have it. I'll find better things to do. Okay. Uh, but one of the better things I found to do was to be the music columnist for Essence. And I was there for most of my uh, time in college. So that really got the interest of the ladies because they all read <laughs> Essence magazines. They'd see me in there every month. So um, I had a rollicking good time all the way through high school, college and beyond.
2: Wonderful. Fantastic.:
0: Can I ask you about Crawdaddy in particular? Sure. Just in the sense of, had you read Crawdaddy in the sixties, for example? And had you, I mean, were you reading underground magazine were you reading rolling stone and so forth in the late 60s i assume yeah. you were yeah
1: yeah well you know i re- read it i would heard about crawdaddy paul williams version of it because once i started uh, frequenting the village it was one of the publications that people mentioned they talked about it rolling stone got started around the same time and i knew about them but i didn't get into rolling stone until much later as a writer I knew many other writers who published in Rolling Stone. Vince Aletti in particular, was yes. a, a very good friend of mine. I knew of him and, and other writers uh, of his, maybe a little older than me, of his generation. I'm <laughs> they were all, all older than me. Uh, so I, I knew of the general scene. I started out with Rock Magazine and another magazine. Uh, I think the name was... Fusion or something like that no, but out of Boston. I start Yeah. Hmm?
0: Fusion was out yeah. of Boston, right? Fusion
1: was out of Boston, so that's not the one I'm thinking about. But Okay. A, a friend of mine started a, a magazine and my ambition was just to get published. Uh, so I would get published wherever I could and it started me, you know, getting into the business on a, a regular level by just being published anywhere. So it didn't it didn't matter to me. I had my clippings from high school, uh, didn't write about music then, wrote more more about social issues and what was coming, including the, the entire hippie revolution, which was actually going on while I was in high school. I didn't I didn't make it to Woodstock. I wouldn't have been. <laughs> good at woodstock that's that's not my scene i mean mud <laughs> mud <laughs> mud and <laughs> marijuana is, is not a good combination in my head
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's uh, brilliant.
1: Yeah, I, I knew about what happened at, at Woodstock, and then I knew it was happening, but it, it wasn't something that I would have gone to.
0: Talking of Woodstock, I really wanted to ask you about this amazing Jimi Hendrix piece that mm-hmm. we're going to feature on the homepage, which yeah. I'm guessing was one of the earliest pieces you wrote. Yes, but, but yes. So it was 24th September 1970. Mm-hmm. Just a week after Jimmy died. And yes. it's an extraordinary yes. piece. I'll just read one short paragraph from it. There was something about Hendrix that made it impossible for him to be placed in any place other than at the pinnacle of our fantasies. He was the crown of our crazed creations, the summit of a drug fantasy world that exploded in our minds. He was the living embodiment of someone we had captured in the course of a deep subterranean trip. I love that. And the whole piece is, it really kind of speaks to how devastating it must have felt to you, and and, and indeed to to you know me many, many thousands of other people, including
2: including <laughs> Pringle. Yeah, it's
3: a magnificent piece. Actually, it's really goes
2: really out there. It's great. Thank you. I'm exactly where I was when I heard he died. My, we were watching the news on television, English television, and it was announced. It's like Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know. Uh, he was huge for me. He was absolutely
0: yeah. huge for me. Yeah. Uh, There's a poignant, There's a in another paragraph towards the end, you say he was destroyed by those he had created, by those that created him, and by the lifestyle that this creation bred. And that's really kind of perceptive for the time. I mean, how did you feel about Jimmy as, I mean, particularly as a black icon of rock? Because there weren't many black rock icons in that Woodstock period. So what did he mean to you? Well,
1: first of all, uh, I have to tell you this: I, I actually went to my sister's wedding in my best Jimmy Hendrix outfit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how influential he was on me. So Sly and Jimmy were to me the very embodiment of the underground culture that existed in our community, which was kind of a rebellion against the strict uh, uniform appearance of the Motown era. And I I love Motown. I love everything about him, including the uniforms. But (laughs) at, at some point I felt that, you know, we were gonna rebel against that because that's just what young people do, whatever's in, they rebel against it and find something else. So uh, Jimi Hendrix and Sly were to me that something else. Right. They, played their, they played the instruments. The instruments were part of their repertoire, the part of their image. So the instruments were not background anymore. They were the front of their image. They they came right to the front. They mm-hmm. were playing guitar. They were going back to the you know the days of Chuck Berry and Little Richard in terms of featuring the instrument in a way that had not been featured over, you know, the the previous decade Mm -hmm. as, you know, the the center of their image. So the fact that they were part of the the hippie culture and they were dressing in a certain way, uh, they were dressing in the freak style that had become uh, popular among rockers primarily because mm-hmm. the the folks that I hung out with most of the time in, in my neighborhood were still pretty much into the straight suit mm-hmm. and tie and temptations satin yeah, yeah. imagery that, that we had grown up with. And there were a few of us who kind of broke out of that mold and were looking for something more
2: Literally far out. I want to see photographic evidence of you, your sister's <laughs> wedding. I have
1: it. I have <laughs> it. Have you
2: ever been? Have you ever been? Do we
4: live?
0: lady land. Vernon, you did send us some wonderful pictures yesterday, yes. including one that is. Pretty freaky and Hendrix-y, actually. <laughs> we, we think we might, we might use for your writer's page on Rocksback Pages. But um, okay. sent us some lovely pictures, including, since we're talking about Sly and the Family Stone, that one you sent of, of yourself with Larry Graham, wow. which looks to me to be... You still have quite short hair, and he's mm. wearing this slightly kind of brocaded kind of, you know, jacket to coat thing. So it looks to me like... Late sixties. It doesn't look like we're into the seventies at that point. Yeah,
1: it was in the seventies. Yeah. It was in the seventies. It was in the seventies, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. It was because you see the beat around my uh my neck. That that that, <laughs> that was like post Okay. Post hippie uh, <laughs> uh, executive. I was on my way post to being exec- an executive. Post hippie <laughs> executive. <laughs> at okay least, cool. at least my image of myself at, at that time. I used to wear, you know, the feathers and and the uh the wild colors and i will send you that picture of me walking my mom down the aisle at my sister's wedding gotta see uh, it (laughs) looking like (laughs) jimmy hendrix as, as much as i could yeah so so yeah yeah jimmy and and sly really appealed to our sense of freedom wanting to break out of the stricture's of whatever it was that was popular at the time, which was the, the Motown sound, mm-hmm. and oh, I also discovered Parliament Funkadelic very, very early. Right, and right after I want to testify, I, I knew there was something special about that song. I, you know, they didn't have their image at that time; they hadn't mm-hmm. gone, you know, freaky at that time. But around 1970, I discovered Funkadelic, their uh, first album. And to this day, I think it's one of the. It wasn't their first; it was their second. They had a, another one called Osmium, yes. that no one ever hears about. So
0: yeah, we always talk know, about Maggot Brain before Ma- anything yeah, else, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maggot yeah. Brain
1: is the yeah. one that people talk about. Yeah. But uh, yeah,
0: their
1: their very first album was to me uh, as brilliant as they come, and I still think you know somebody should cover songs from that album. Uh, maybe I'll produce it one day. I, I keep <laughs> fantasizing about that covering songs Why not? From the second sure. Funkadelic album, but so I discovered all those at the same time. And being able to be on my own in college was certainly liberating, uh, because you know I'd grown up in a very strict seven day Adventist right. uh, seven day Adventist home, where we <laughs> went to church every Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of no-no's. But as kids, you always find a way around those no-no's. Yes. Yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> as, as, if, you're lucky, the, if you're yes. lucky. If you're lucky. Yes.
1: So I would hang out with my friends from church, and we'd have our sweaty little basement parties. And I wrote about that in the Tacky 183 Soul Man column Tacky Fights the Boogaloo Boulevards to a Draw. That's yeah, an amazing that's, piece. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, an amazing yeah, piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I distilled my whole childhood into a few paragraphs because it was something that flowed out of me literally nonstop. I, I, I remember writing it and I remember it just flowing out of my uh, psyche mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a few hours. So... You know, being an Adventist put, you know, restrictions on you. Mm. And going to college at Columbia uh, allowed me to loose myself from those restrictions and really start to investigate everything that I had been taught and, you know, investigate it fully and freely. I was able to get into the music business. I had a radio show at Columbia. So I was able to play music that no one else would hear on the radio, including much funkadelic and Hendrix. And I have to say that Hendrix was never accepted by the black community the way I thought he should have been Mm -hmm. uh, because the image was so different. The music was so different. It was loud. (laughs) <laughs> I, it was it was daring and it was controversial. Yeah. And even though he started out in Harlem, he never got the acceptance that he should have. He didn't get airplay on Black Radio. Yeah. And when he died, uh, a lot of people were surprised mm-hmm. that, that he had been that famous and yeah. that they had not really known about it. It's interesting. Yeah. That-
2: Whilst you're absolutely right, I mean, for example, he played that Harlem Festival in 69 and got basically booed off the stage. Yeah, yeah. But his influence on black music was huge. I mean, maybe the audience wasn't listening, but the yeah. musicians sure were. I mm-hmm. mean, people like Eddie Hazel and those sorts of guys, right. you know, right. just just loved him, didn't they? Yes. And, of course, Ernie Isley, who, who yes. knew him as a kid, you know. Yes, was, yes. Yes. yes, yes, absolutely. So, yeah.
1: So so the influence kind of came musically a little bit later after he had mm-hmm. gone and, and people had time to absorb what he had done and realize what we had lost. Uh, so, yeah, those are good examples of how his influence uh, pervaded the music scene. And the Isley Brothers are a great example of yeah, that. Yeah. And, and, of course, Funkadelic was yeah. totally created around the idea of Emulating that sound. Yes, Eddie Hazel was a great, great, great guitarist.
4: They
1: had. Except for Mike Hampton, yeah. another brilliant uh, young guitarist. So they had a series of, of really great guitarists. Glenn Goins was more of a rhythm guitarist. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I had the, the pleasure of being able to work with him with Quasar.
0: Well, I'd really like to get to Quasar. But before we <laughs> do that, just since <laughs> you mentioned Sly, I wanted to just drop in this piece that you wrote in, in 1975 for, for a New Musical Express, for the NME which is kind of, you know, Sly in grave decline, and you, you don't kind of mince your words. You're pretty savage. And one of the reasons for mentioning this and including this piece on the homepage this, this week is because, as you may have heard, Vernon, Sly is going to be publishing his autobiography in the not-too-distant future. It's called Thank You, and my former editor, Lee Braxton, is publishing it here in the White Rabbit imprint and i guess we're all i mean it's written with this guy ben greenman who did the who did a prince book and did brian wilson's books i don't know what it's going to be like but the fact that sly is still alive is is pretty miraculous in itself yeah but this piece you know you basically go to see him performing and the venue is half empty because people are so tired of sly not turning up for shows and essentially the 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 gig is about cool and the gang and you talk about these new young funk bands who are seizing the mantle and sly is i mean you you say sly is attempting to put band-aids on gaping wounds you talk about his haphazard funk you know i mean it's a sad a sad picture of of a funk genius was it Demoralizing for you when you talk about how important Hendrix and Sly was. Demoralizing to see what had happened to Sly by nineteen seventy-five or even seventy-four, right? Right. Small Talk was a terrible record. Yeah, yeah. Fresh was great, but Small Talk was pretty awful. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, one of the saddest things that I ever heard anybody say was, my son asked me when he was maybe ten years old. He said, "When did Sly Stone die?" Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I yep. T- I had t- to explain to him, Sly is alive and well, son. You know, <laughs> he's he uh, he died uh, because you know he gave into the lifestyle, yeah. uh, in a way that a lot of rockers do. So I mean, he's not the only one. There's there's sure. tons of them.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because George Clinton himself and Sly were sort of Crack pipe buddies for a, yeah. a great chunk of time, but Clinton, being a kind of stronger individual, yeah. came through out the other side, yeah. yep. and Sly really didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the thing about drugs is that some people can handle them and some yeah, people can't. Yeah, can. yeah. Now, it's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, And another sad thing for me was discovering uh, Pink Floyd and, and finding out that you know their lead singer. I had, you know, basically freaked himself out Yes, uh, from doing too much acid.
2: Yes. And, and
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, and all of that made me very cautious about, you know, any kind of experimentation beyond, you know, the occasional to, or, you know, what any of us would do. Sure. Of what I, I, I can't speak for anybody else. No. What I did was just to, you know, try something just to see how, how it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but, Certain things you you can see that you you can't mess with it too much. And uh, I wasn't strong enough to mess around with with certain things um, Mm. beyond one experiment or two. And those were, you know, uh, very revealing. Uh, I, I remember, you know, trying something to go see Pink Floyd and not making it to the concert because <laughs> I, 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 I had been anticipating this concert for so long because I'd been listening to the music and I, I was totally into it. And I took a little something before I, I went <laughs> and I, I got on the subway and never made it to the concert. I was wandering around the subways for, for hours and, and I got to the concert at the very end because I realized where I was supposed to be going after hours of wandering. Oh dear and you know <laughs> I, and uh, you know I said to myself, you know I could have cost my life in uh, yeah, the sure. subway, you know, who knows what I might have done I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna mess around with this stuff anymore.
0: No no so, no fair
1: enough. You know when you're a star though, and I, I see this all the time, the attention that you're getting and the all the people telling you how great you are, it's just so mesmerizing and overpowering that you can easily succumb to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have a lot of pity on Sly because, I, you know, I'm a young man myself. He's just a few years older than me. And I realized that at some point you have to say no to things. And he apparently did not say no. Mm-hmm. And I thought he should have. I, I thought with all that you've created, where you are, you have to say no to certain things and pull yourself together. And, and he didn't. And I thought it was, it was disgraceful for our community to see somebody go downhill like that. Mm, but it yeah. happened to even stronger people. James Brown went through a, a yeah. period where he was out of it also. So the fact that I, I, went, I grew up in an Adventist home, Really gave me a, a certain amount of moral fiber that enabled me to stay on the straight and narrow as much as I could. Sure. And uh, you know, I, I thank my mom and my family for instilling that in me. So it kind of gave me a soapbox from which to uh, <laughs> <laughs> expose yeah. my my thoughts from. And in that particular piece, I let him have it. And Mm. uh, I think rightfully so.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting about that piece is that you're talking about Cool and the Gang and you talk about the Ohio Players and the BT Express Mm -hmm. stealing his Mm -hmm. hip young audience. And it's kind of right at that moment of disco really starting to take off. But one of the things you say about Cool and the Gang is that they're continuously growing as musicians and are the only progressive soul band who've embraced jazz tradition so unashamedly and with such obvious ability. And I found Mm -hmm. that interesting because you know, it's disco, but you're really talking about their jazz influences and their soloing and all of this kind of thing. And so that that was an interesting confluence for me to read about.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I became an evangelist for what I call progressive soul. And that term never caught on. It Mm. became more like funk. They talked about it in terms of the funk aspect and not the progressive soul part of it. So Progressive soul again is because you know I grew up with religion, and so you know the idea of saving one's soul uh, was so important to me. But I, I guess it's it's not important to everyone, and I kept pushing that term, but it never it never caught on. And what I saw happening was in the neighborhood I lived, there were groups like Mandrill, literally right down the street. Oh, right. right. Uh, they they lived maybe five blocks away from me. And I saw all these young bands practicing in their basements. And I realized that there was something happening and they were doing it because of the influence, the image that Sly had established from Mm -hmm. 67 on. The backup bands had always been around, you know, since I was a kid, I I knew of backup bands that there were clubs where you could go see, you know, you know, Groups that were covering whatever was on the charts mm-hmm. in Best Eye. So the the clubs were in Best Eye. It wasn't the yeah, Best yeah. charts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even though they could have had their own chart. <laughs> so I knew about that. But when Sly said, hey, here's what we can do you can put a, a band together, a band, yeah. not a group. And that, that was a, an important distinction for me. A self contained group where you write your own material, you arrange your own material, and you play it both in studio and live. Yeah, yeah. I thought, well, this is a really cool new thing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't new, of course, because you go back to the 30s, the 40s. There were bands doing the same exact thing, but in a different era. Yeah, yeah. So To me, it was a revival of the Duke Ellingtons and the Count Basies, but on a different level in terms of... Musical ability, Mm -hmm. but the funk that they were basing it on, James Brown had been playing it for for years. He was the master. He was the creator of that. So, by combining that with Sly's uh, progressive arrangements, intricate songwriting, the vocals, you know, bouncing from one person to another, Norman Whitfield took that. Same direction with The Temptations by about 67 to come into a whole new direction. That was exciting. That was new. Mm-hmm. New to me. And it was new. So I, I started writing about them extensively. I mean, as a matter of fact, that was my main interest. That and and jazz like Herbie Hancock. I, yeah. I was a big, mm. big fan of Herbie sure. Hancock. Sure. From the first time I heard Maiden Voyage and one of the local stations. So to me, being able to combine that type of influence with funk was the way to go. And, mm. you know, the band started doing more and more of that and uh, started a whole new movement. So I was very happy to be able to talk about that and personally experience it uh, because I knew Mandrill and other local bands. Cool and the Gang were just... Uh, to me, the, the great masters
3: of that. Yeah, yeah. I love Call yeah. the Gang. What an awesome band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Talking of progressive soul, mm-hmm. then one of the major figures that you interviewed in the 70s, and you interviewed most of them, was Marvin Gaye and you wrote this great piece which was a cover story in zoo world in november 74 and the reason for talking about marvin is that it's 50 years almost to the day since the let's get it on album came out mm-hmm. so that would be mm-hmm. a nice opportunity just to talk about marvin and your memories of marvin who was you know a, a complicated guy and you more than hints at this in the piece and he's being quite diffident about the attention he gets from women he's getting he's being he says he doesn't enjoy performing live i mean all all these kind of things about about marvin that we we you know we kind of know the divided soul of of marvin gay what are your memories of of meeting marvin my guess is that it seems that this was done on August twenty sixth, nineteen seventy four. Because you talk about the Nassau Coliseum gig, which I think was on the twenty fifth, which mm-hmm. is so. So that's tomorrow. That's yeah. So you interviewed him in New York in his hotel. He's wearing a bathrobe, which is mm-hmm. perfect because Mar- Marvin was often wearing bathrobes when he's being interviewed, <laughs> yeah. and his little kids running around. And do you do you have a memory of that encounter?
1: First of all, you know, I have to say that Marvin Gaye was one of my favorites from Motown. Yeah. The Temptations were probably first. Mm-hmm. The Screams, you know, The Four Tops, Smokey Robinson. But Marvin Gaye, when he put out I Heard It Through the Grapevine, interestingly enough, I, I heard Barry Gordy say that the version of uh, Marvin Gaye's Heard It Through the Grapevine had been done not, not in the order that we normally think. Gladys Knight and the Pips did "Hurt It Through the Grapevine. Mm-hmm. And Marvin's version, which came out later, had been done before their right. version, which to me was unbelievable. I, I just couldn't imagine that he would have been that far ahead of where everybody else was because Heard It Through the Grapevine was a standard mid 60s Motown arrangement yeah, yeah. and tempo where. Marvin Gaye's "Heard It Through the Grapevine" it was a full transition to funk, from the uh, the, the, the tempo to the insistent bassline. The arrangement, everything was yeah, yeah. light years ahead of mm-hmm. where Gladys Knight and, and the Pips were.
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, because Gladys Knight and the Pips is much more up tempo, much yeah. brassier, much a classic yeah. sort of Motown group. Yeah. Pretty great, um, so I have to it's, say. Uh, no, no, but, yeah, I have yeah. no
1: problem with it. Well, yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I, know, I, know, I love yeah. Gladys Knight. I mean, she's yeah. actually one of yeah. my favorite. But yeah. Marvin's sing with that sort of electric piano sound, that yeah. much slower, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's a, it's a different beast altogether. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Don't you know that
1: So, you know, I thought he was a, a genius from the time I heard that. I had been fans of his earlier stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Can I get a witness? Oh, yeah. man, I'm yeah. a witness. <laughs> oh, you <know? laughs> yes, you got me. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so I, I was thrilled to meet him, as, as I was with many of the people that I met with. And, and I was doing it for the fun. You mm-hmm. know, I was in college, so I was doing it for the fun. I did realize how serious it was and how important it was, but it was, I was doing it for the fun. So by that time he, he had done his greatest classic and he had ca- kind of become a prophet. And when he shifted it, you know, from being the prophet of our times to singing about sex, you know, I thought, wow, man, he, he should have done another prophesying album, you know. Right. To to and, and I thought that well, you know, singing about sex, eh, you know, by this time I'm, I think I'm sophisticated. Uh, I've had plenty of fun <laughs> with the ladies. Uh, what do we need another sex record for?
0: Oh, that's so funny. Because yeah. you don't
1: mention <laughs> it. It's really
0: interesting that you, he talks about what's going on yeah. in, the, in the interview. And, he, and you, you, you talk about the Trouble Man soundtrack yeah. as well. Yeah. But you don't mention yeah. Let's Get It On at all, which is yeah. a yeah. huge record. Yeah, You know, it was like number one yes. single albums and everything, right? Yeah. Uh, and you don't even mention it. I, and I'm like, I, I wonder a, why, yeah. no. Well,
1: <laughs> I felt a little jaded. I was like, you know, come on, man. We, we've all had sex. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't need another, we don't need another sex album, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought he, he should have stayed on that path of what's going on at least one more time. And... I was surprised that he wasn't happy. I was surprised that that he, he seemed so dis- dispirited. Uh that in spite of all the fame and the attention and the, the money and everything that we see mm-hmm. as fans, that he he wasn't a happy person. No and that kind of upset me. Yeah. Because I thought he should be happy. He should be happy for us because we're we're happy for him.
0: Mm-hmm. He was—he was a, was a troubled—he was a troubled soul. He wasn't troubled, he? I mean, we, he was we a have troubled a, man. You know, troubled man, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. we have an audio interview with Marvin from 1976 on Rock's Back Pages, and you can kind of see him sort of wrestling with his own, you know dilemmas and his, his wrestling with his own soul, you know, it's, it's, and you know, the whole weird thing of him ending up living in Ostend in Belgium. I mean, that, right. that yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary of him in, yes. in, in Ostend. It's just yeah. of all the places, you know, You're yes. like Why <laughs> yeah. Ostend? Yeah. but it, yeah. it's, I sort of loved it about him as well yeah. in a way, because it was so weird. Yeah. It was such a weird thing for yeah. someone that's that remarkable to do. Yeah, l-
1: Let me say this, that uh, I ended up being involved with him again uh, at that point in his career. I was doing uh, biographies for different uh, record companies and they called me to interview him for his last big hit. Uh, he was living in, in Belgium at the time. And interestingly enough, the person that I have worked with at Arista Records, where I got one of my two gold albums for Larkin Arnold, who was uh, a great, what probably one of the greatest or the greatest executives, A&R executives in the music business. He ended up being the, the man behind Thriller. So he went from working at Aristo, where we did disco nights together, to working on Michael Jackson's Thriller album.
0: Via Capital, I think, wasn't he? He, he was he a Capitol, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes.
1: So he had, he had worked on Sun and Natalie Cole. Yeah. And so he came in with a great reputation. And he immediately lived up to his reputation because the first thing he brought in was by a friend of mine, Bowray Fleming, who had worked with Mandrill as their manager. And Bowray knew me well and he called me, but he said, I can't go over you. Larkin's head. I, but I have to tell you about this group, GQ. I think they have a hit record. You got to come see him. We, we went to see him. It was a basement in the Bronx. They played Disco Nights one time. <laughs> I looked at Larkin and said, man, this is a hit record. You got to sign him right away. And, and he did. He knew it was a hit record, too. And within a, a, a couple of years, I had left Arister, and he had left also. He had gone to, to Columbia are epic. Uh, and he was the the guy behind the scenes. He, he didn't get this. He, uh, he signed uh, Luther Vandross. That's
2: right.
1: I had known for years that he had had five albums in Atlantic that didn't go anywhere. And he used to come up and try to get deals. And I, I really liked him. But no one could really see where he would be going after five albums. And that didn't do anything all of a sudden, and he was with Jerry Wessler at the time. So if Jerry Wetzler couldn't break sure. him, well, who can? Well, sure. Larkin turned out to be the guy who who figured out what to do with what him. To so, do with so Larkin Luther. was a genius.
0: Yeah, it was a, yeah. it
1: was a, amazing to be able to work with two of the greatest A and R men ever, Clive Davis and and uh,
0: Larkin. But so Vernon, how did you come to work for Arista? How how did uh, that happen?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting story. So I was in. Uh, Bogalusa, Louisiana, at a studio called Studio in the Country, and I oh, actually, yeah. yeah, yeah, I actually talked to talked the studio owner into allowing me to cut a demo on a group called MG Funk, and with all the <laughs> stuff that I've forgotten in my life, I just remember certain things so clearly. M.G. Funk uh, allowed me to produce them. And, uh, you know, I thought of myself as a fledgling producer. I was going to be the next Barry Gordy (laughs) and all that. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And the demo that I did with them ended up at Arista Records on Clive's desk. And I didn't even realize that that he had any interest in it because it just lay there for months. And one day I get a call from the... Publicity department at Aristotle and said, "Clive Davis wants to see you." I mean, basically, <laughs> <and> <laughs> in those ominous tones. I said, "What? did I do wrong? Maybe I didn't like something I wrote, but didn't it didn't matter? Because you know, I, I'm an independent person. I write whatever I feel." But he called me to offer me a job as his A and R guy, and I had worked at Mercury for a year. Uh, again, got the job from talking. To somebody about my interest in in music and my vision of where music was gonna go, I went to Chicago to do an article on the Dells.
0: We just added that piece to Rock's Back Pages, funnily enough.
1: Oh, really? It was an okay. es- essence, an essence.
0: Yes, an essence, into essence your right. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So that that article is what
1: that that's what got me into the A and R side of the music business because I got the job. Because Cliff Bernstein, who is now the manager of Metallica, was the uh, was an A&R man there. And he was working with a guy named Robin. can't remember Robin's last name, but he did all the Ohio Players uh, music. He was really the, oh, wow. their studio guy. I can't remember his last name. But anyway, I got involved with Mercury Records that way because I was writing about the Dells, and they asked me to come on as their A&R guy. And I ended up working with Jerry Wexler's daughter, Anita Mm. Wexler. She was brought in after I was uh, brought in as A&R director. So I I was there for about a year. I did a flop album with Tony Sylvester from The Main Ingredient. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't do well, and I remember... Charlie Fash calling me into his office and saying, holding the album up, if this had been a hit, you'd still be here. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) The album that I had championed and had my name on as executive producer, which is where I saw myself going. If this had been a hit, you'd still be here. But unfortunately, it wasn't, so we got to let you go. But a few months afterwards, (laughs) Clive Davis called because I had done some production I learned a little bit about the studio because Mercury Records had their own studio in the same building. It was a four-track studio. So I would do demos there a lot. So I learned about, you know, making decent sounding demos and that's what got me the job at Arista Records okay. because I I did a demo in uh, Bogalusa studio in the country and sent that around to the business and, the fact that I was a critic or a music journalist and able to do decent demos must have interested Clive because he offered me the job as A and R director of R and B in seventy six, seventy seven, around that time. Right. Just right. as disco was really starting to peak. And yeah. it really had been my dream to work for someone like Clive. It was a fantasy though. I mean Clive Davis, even then, was the pinnacle of uh, music business executive. And he had had a great track record, including signing Sly and the Family Stone.
0: Yeah. I bet he had more than a few Sly stories to share with you, right? Well,
1: he, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, no, okay. he, didn't, he didn't share them okay. with me.
0: But, okay. but, uh, he, had he put some out in of, his book, right? Uh, yeah. He did.
1: He did. I'm in this, the second Arista book, not his book, but yes. So we, we started talking about Marvin Gaye. So all of this connected because I ended up, you know, doing his bio for the, the last hit he had. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the. They, they hit
0: not sexual, sexual healing, healing. Yes. okay okay yes yeah.
1: sexual which healing. is kind of yes.
0: like which is which is of. let's get it on with yes. viagra added right, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that
1: that's perfect yeah uh yes and that's the one where he was sued for taking the title because somebody came in and marvin said what does this sound like to you and the guy said ah it sounds like sexual healing and that was just a track by itself without uh, any of the lyrics. And he uh. wrote the song <laughs> from that person's suggestion of calling it sexual healing. And the person sued him and won. And they got a, a portion of the uh, the uh writing.
3: Think what you could have done with Essence magazine. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm
1: thinking about it. When I, whenever I hear about them selling for $50 million, <laughs> I, I think I could use a little bit of that money myself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> And and also that ties in with, of course, you know, Ed Sheeran going to court twice to deny that he stole from Let's Get It On for for his hit, Thinking Out Loud. So, you know, I guess this is just going to happen more and more frequently, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I I feel that that's an unfortunate uh, trend. I don't think Robin Thicke should have been sued for uh, stealing anything because... Because that was what got to give
0: it up, right? Have I got that right? It's another Marvin yes. song wasn't yes. it? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. So, Marvin so I don't I
1: don't know how you can you can yeah. claim a cadence is original. Cadences are what watching um, bands do. Sure. So I mean Yeah,
0: well we were, we were sort of debating this earlier a little bit when we were listening yeah. to that Ed Sheeran song and it's I agree. Let's get it on. I want to just briefly Vern, hmm. mention Quasar record, which I've owned for many, many years. I didn't realize that you were instrumental in making yes. this record happen. It's a bit sort of funk cult classic. And you yes. mentioned Glenn Goines earlier, mm-hmm. uh, and he obviously came out of the P-Funk stable. Right. And in that Arista book that you, you referred to by Mitchell Cohen, our friend Tom Vickers talks about how important Glenn Goines was in the P-Funk setup. Yes. And so just tell us very briefly... Just the story of, you know, actually the very, very sad, tragic story of that, of the Quasar album. So
1: Robert Middleman came to me with Quasar and he, I had known him from, you know, me hanging around P-Funk. I've been to every P-Funk concert that I could, including one that I produced myself (laughs) at Columbia University. And this was right around the time of Maggot Brain, which I thought was a brilliant album, and I thought the place would be packed. And uh, it wasn't. There were about five people in the audience, including myself. And George Clinton went on, and they did a show just like if it was packed with 30,000 people. And so they were playing just for me and a few friends. Uh, And I I will never... (laughs) Uh, forget that. And so so I knew Glenn because I'd been around the group, you know, quite a bit. And so when Robert came to me, I said, of course, mm-hmm. and I, I brought it to Clive's attention and uh, he signed them. And he was looking at Glenn as another Sly Stone. Uh, and Glenn certainly had the ability to be that. Uh, he was a little bit more soulful than Sly. Uh, he was more uh, a guitarist, than a multi instrumentalist, uh, but he certainly had the the drive and the ambition to be uh, another Sly Stone, and the ability.
0: Yeah, that's what Tom Vickers said to to Mitchell Cohen that he yeah he had it all right.
1: Yes, yes, he did. And uh, the uh, album came out the summer that it was either that summer or the summer after. I'd been there for um, a year or so.
0: It's 78, it's 78,
1: 78. is 78 yeah okay 78 so I had started in 77
0: Seven? yeah. yeah I
1: think so yeah, yeah so everything was going along well the album came out it wasn't a huge hit uh, but it was getting them enough attention to warrant a second album and Glenn was running on the beach one day you know and he just dropped dropped dead oh He had a condition. I I don't think it had been diagnosed correctly, a heart condition that had not been diagnosed correctly. And uh, he just dropped dead at at the prime of his youth.
0: 24 years old. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I don't think the lifestyle had much to do with it. He he just had a condition that nobody had had correctly diagnosed. It it was just a terrible situation. The group after that, they, they... they weren't going anywhere because he right. was the guiding light behind the group.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: They just dissipated. Didn't have a chance at
0: this point. Some, some great stuff on that record. After Arista Records, you went back to music writing, mm-hmm. and we have pieces by you from Cream Magazine. You interviewed Pink Floyd for Cream. You were on the road with Prince in 1983 for Cream. And the piece that we've we've added from that period is, is actually an interview with Richard Hell, because yes. it interested me that you were... He were writing about people like that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's a piece where he, he, he actually, he defines the blank generation, which is, which is brilliant. And talks about Sid Vicious. It's a really interesting piece, May 83. And it's kind of looking back and putting that whole, concept of the blank generation yeah into context yeah so it's, it's a really good piece and you carried on writing through it. i so i mentioned Richard partly because it ties in with with talking heads whose the, the famous film stop making sense has just mm-hmm. been re-released in cinemas and we have this phone interview with tina weymouth talking about Talking Heads, talking about David Byrne. Mark, tell us a little
2: bit about this, and then we'll hear a couple of clips from Tina Weymouth. Yes, um, from October 96, Jim Sullivan, Boston Globe, on the phone to Tina Weymouth. And it's about this weird thing where Talking Heads were in some disarray, I think you can safely say, and the remainder of the band formed a band called The Heads, releasing an album called No Talking, Just Head, which I subsequently discovered had some of the worst reviews of any any album ever released. She talks about Dave Byrne's refusal to rejoin the band, the complicated legal and personal relationship between the rest of the band and David Byrne, making this album, working with Debbie Harry, Richard Hell as singers, Andy Partridge, Johnette Napolitano. In that context, we can listen to the, the first clip. She talks about being a female bass player. Let's have a listen to this clip.
4: You were the woman who inspired many, many other women to pick up instruments. Oh, well, instruments. There was another one before me. Well, the, well. Carol Kay. She inspired me, and then there was the one. Um. Oh God. Uh, Devil Canyon. Keny- um. Susie Quattro. Oh, definitely Susie. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, oh, yeah. I mean, i I remember yeah. covering her actually back. But now it, at, it, it yeah. is funny how it's become like a. A girl's instrument. Well, certainly my boys see it that way because of their role modeling. They play guitar, drums, and keyboards, but not bass. Oh, do they really? Yeah? Oh, Jesus. Because that's a girl's instrument. How old are your kids, by the way? What ages? Oh, uh, 13 and 10. I go visit, and I talk about
2: That's an interesting point because actually, there are a lot of really great women based players. I'm mean, Kim Clark, a defunct, is an absolute yeah. favorite one of my best. Gail Ann fans. Dorsey, who played yeah. with Bowie. Yeah, a whole bunch of them. And that, that marvelous woman who played with Jeff Beck. Anyway, yes. so talks about that sort of stuff, talks about going on the road with Jonette Napolitano as the lead singer. And yeah, let's listen to the next clip. It's about sort of, it starts off talking about what they're going to do live, but then gets into talking about David Byrne.
4: We're going to be playing for the people in, in the audience who are there. Yeah, yeah. And wow. and we couldn't care less about um, any other sort of, of, of critical nonsense that yeah. has nothing to do with it. Right, right. You know, uh, oh my God, the heads are getting back together without David. Oh my God. Right. You know, what, what bullshit is that, you know? That's right. Well, I that's mean, we love, we love David, but... David has moved into his, his own little world. His own world. And uh, it doesn't include the rest of us. If I, ha- if I just, I'll let you go. If I if you did by some chance run into him on the streets of Westport... He'd run away. Would he run away? You wouldn't have a chance to go up to him. He would run away. He would run away the, the second he saw me. <laughs> He's a bully and a coward. No. Don't quote me Oh, enough. God. <laughs>
0: I'm afraid we have quoted her on that. And just ahead of the, their press conference that they're doing at the Toronto Film Festival, and in, about, in, in in like about 10 days, the original four members are getting together. So um, I hope Tina doesn't hear that. Or <laughs> and, so, hear and,
2: that. and sue us, seeing as half the, us. half the interviews about legal action of one description or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> but Barney, what did you make of it?
0: Well, I found it, it quite an uncomfortable listen in some way, because there are always two sides to everything story and you know i th- there's no doubt that david byrne is an awkward bugger but the passive aggression in this interview that tina gives to jim you know is is is, is sort of it's, it's kind of dripping with passive aggression isn't it <laughs> when, she's, when she says we love david it's like really <laughs> and this really does not come across in this, in this interview <laughs> i really wanted to ask our guest particularly about Talking Heads in the context of, I mean, if you think about Richard Hell and the Voidoids, you think about the Ramones, you think about other CBGB bands, Talking Heads were, you know, really not like a punk rock band at all. And, and of all of them, one might say they were the, the group that most kind of embraced non-rock and roll elements, right? That's fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, even on the first album, no. Which I, I just listened back to, which I love. I really love the the first record, um, all all the first like four records. But there's really funky things even on the first, the first album, right? So I just wondered whether you saw them, whether you, what your thoughts at the time were about Talking Heads mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the other bands from that that period. Yeah. and see,
1: yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you asked me about Talking Heads because you know, one of the things that I had been anticipating was a combination of funk and rock. Coming from the funk side, I anticipated that there would be bands that, uh, black bands, quite frankly, that would combine funk and rock in a way that had not ever been done before. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was looking for as an A&R man at Arista and at Mercury from the time I went there. And unfortunately, what I was looking for did not align with what senior music executives thought of as being black music. Right. And they didn't see the point in combining funk and rock because rock was doing great it's like 77, selling millions of copies, Fleetwood Mac, Boston, boots like sure. that, with that hard, heavy metal sound. And funk was doing well. Earth, Wind and Fire selling two, three, four million albums. So they said, you know, well, I mess with a good thing. And I actually had a executive at Mercury tell me, no one wants to hear niggers play rock and roll. But mm-hmm. when I brought him a guitarist named Mickey Free, who ended up being part of Princess Entourage and was in the Eddie Murphy skit. About playing basketball against Prince and seeing this guy who was so beautiful, he looked like a woman. Well, that was Mickey Free. He was—he's an Indian Black mixture, and a great guitarist. And I tried to sign him, and I was told that he was better. That I tried to sign him at, at Mercury, and I was told by Cliff Bernstein that he was his group called Smokehouse was better than any. Rock group they had at the time. And that included, you know, some of the biggest, uh, Rush, included Rush. He said they were better than Rush. And they wouldn't sign the group because it was mixed. Mickey being a black Indian mixer, a, a black man, and uh, a white drummer. And they couldn't figure out what this group was. So I was happy to see Talking Heads uh, and their combination of funk and rock because I had anticipated that but I was anticipating it from from my community. And I remember when Life During Wartime came out that the one line that caught everybody's attention was, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around. And, you know, people who had never been into them before heard that line and said, hey, wait, this is a party. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and, and, And they... Gravitated toward the song for that reason, so I thought that uh, you know Talking Heads was a, a very good combination because it was what I had been looking for. The whole punk scene, I didn't really really see what the noise was all about, you know, about rebelling against the mega bands like Pink Floyd because I love Pink Floyd, I still do, <laughs> and uh, I like Rush and I really like Boston, so. You know that whole huge sound, stadium filling sound with the authoritarian <laughs> guitars. I had no problem. I had no problem with it
0: at all. More than and more than a feeling. is like yeah. the Matterhorn of AOR. I mean, <laughs> go. It, it's just it's got to yeah. be one of the greatest records ever made. Can we agree exactly. on that? Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs>
1: So, again, I I didn't see what, and being an a A guy by that time, I didn't see what all the yelling and screaming was all about. And I, I, I wrote about it from that point of view. And interestingly enough, when I first read the article or heard about the article that I had written, I said, this must be a forgery. I had no interest in that enough to write it, and I had to read the whole thing and see my name at the end to realize, yes, I did write this article and had no recollection of writing it whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. And and I I still don't have it in my files because unfortunately a lot of my articles got destroyed accidentally. But the the only regret I have is that I had a, a bias against that whole scene because of a personal experience. I went to CBGB's, I think it was Halloween, and I don't remember the year, and I had a brand new car. And I had my father's all his paraphernalia because he had passed away recently. And I had it in the trunk of my car. And while we were in the club, I heard some people say, Oh my God, there's a car on fire out there. And I said, Oh, oh poor gosh. guy. Poor guy. Some guy's car is on fire. And I went out, it was my car my brand new car and somebody had torched it because it was Halloween and they thought it was a cool thing to do. Destroyed oh, all my that's stuff. Horrible. Oh, so yeah. So I, I, kind of had, I kind of took it personally and I, and I, I said, well, is this what this is all about? And un- unfortunately my feeling about the whole scene kind of came out in the article where I, I just kind of came out against the whole nihilism of, of the scene and the only groups that I liked from that uh, was really Blondie and Talking Heads. The, the other groups, you know, I didn't, see, I didn't see the point of the Ramones. And, you know, I, I didn't see the point what Richard Hell was doing. And in retrospect, maybe I should have avoided commenting on something that I was seeing from a, a, such a biased point of view and that I wasn't actively involved with. But at, at the time, I, I felt, you know, I could write about anything that I had a feeling about one way or another, and that's what I did in that case. I, I kind of thought that, that punk was a flash in the pan and that it, it would, you know, go the way of all flesh, but the police came out of that. I mean, they, they're one of my favorite groups, and they came out of that scene, but they quickly became a hit-making band, which... Uh, a lot of the, most of the others did not. So, you know, out of all, any scene that comes along and makes that much noise, you're going to eventually, hopefully get something great and lasting. And the, the ones that I, I pointed out have been that, Blondie, the police, sure. talking heads. Uh, others did not. I have to say this about flash in the pan scenarios. I thought, as did many other exe- executives, that, uh hip hop was a flash in the pan because it we had heard you know here come the judge in in sixty five sure, uh, yes, yeah. yeah, so oh also oh, another it's here come the judge, but ten- near ten years later, uh and more than ten years later and and I'd been around rap in clubs for years, so the idea that that would become more than, you know, one hit record, Sugar Hill Gang, that that was going to be it. And I thought that was going to be a flash in the pan. And I'll go on a record as saying that even though I became a fan, I was not a big fan when it started. And I'm not a huge fan now, but I can certainly see the relevance and what it has done in terms of influencing American culture and global cult- culture. So some flashes become more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I just yeah. didn't think that, that punk was going to be that. And, you know, I was wrong about hip hop. And I think I was right about punk, that it kind of dissipated after a while.
0: Well, next time there's a flash in the pan, bet the house on it. believe me (laughs) listen we we, unfortunately we we are we're drawing to a close we're running out of time but it's been so wonderful talking to you about your career and all its many aspects we're just going to go out with just quotes from uh, my colleagues here about pieces that they've added. As I said to you earlier, if there, anything kind of strikes you or you have anything to comment on, do jump in. But I'm going to ask Mark just to tell us about a few pieces he's added to the RBP library in the last couple of weeks or so. Yeah, well, yeah. The,
2: the, the first one from, from a couple of weeks ago, this is deeply depressing. Tom Vickers, the Five <laughs> yeah. Minister, Minister of Information, uh, interviewing Kenny Gamble. Now, this is 19- Rolling Stone, 1976. Philadelphia International had been done for... Paola, there was, there was lawsuits happening i believe mfsb had just walked from the label uh so obviously it wasn't a great time for him he comes over as an awful misogynist he talks about women just in really kind of grim way and then he says his last thing he says we never, we've never written a song like the English groups used to write about taking pills, going on trips, getting high. They should have investigated the English groups when they came over. They should have indicted them, stopped them when they were coming over here, spreading the immorality that's present in our country right now. Uh, I think it, by that means, well, yeah, wow. I mean, the word indictment is, is on all our lips kind of every other
0: day at the moment. So to hear the idea of like the Rolling Stones being indicted, indicted. indicted is wonderful, uh, isn't it?
2: it? It's a really depressing interview because I'm a massive Gamble and Huff fan. Sure. I love Philadelphia International Records. And he, he comes over just r- really grimly. Another kind of grim person, in this case this is a person I have no time for whatsoever, Steve Bloom, a musician, interviewing Kenny G in 1988. Oh. God, this is this is about sort of, you know, you know, jazz like Smooth and jazz. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, said, and Kenny G says, hey, Clive Davis is not going down the village to the village vanguard and take sax player off the stage and say, you're the one. I'm going to do all of this for you because I'm who I am and I've done what I've done. I'm here. And because and, and because that particular sax player has done the things he's done, he's there. That's not an imbalance. I pushed. I'm an achiever. i shook a lot of hands. I knocked on a lot of doors. I begged a little bit, and here I am. That's America. Uh, Thank you, Thank you Kenny vomit. G. Uh, lastly, I, this week, Kim Fowley, the notorious and fairly revolting Kim Fowley, being interviewed by Radio Pete for New York Rock in on 1979. Rock and roll has become an attitude. It's invaded politics. Jesus Christ, Adolf Hitler and F. Scott Fitzgerald were all rock and roll. Jerry Brown is only Mott Hoople's definition of a lounge lizard. And Ayatollah Khomeini is a surf instrumental guitarist. Ted Kennedy is one of the lettermen. And Miss Lillian Carter is Moms Mabel on a Florence Greenberg level. I'm, t- I'm taking a Bertrand Russell <laughs> position on a, Ho Chi, on a Ho Chi Minh level. There's this pure distilled essence of Fowley. Did you ever encounter
0: Kim? Kim no, even no. no, I did not. No, Lucky I, you. I, I did no. not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but but I just want to comment on uh, Gamble's statement, and that mm-hmm. is that you know you can't blame any particular generation for immorality. I think immorality has been around for a, a long, long time. You know, I, I find that very surprising that yeah. he would pin it on just. You know, one particular generation. You look through history, you'll find plenty of
2: immorality oh, going yeah. around. So oh, yeah, no, he's. A, I, I think he's basically quite an angry man about the situation. label labelled him at the time because they've been indicted yeah. for Paola and all that, and he's blaming it on us Brits, and he's blaming yes. us Brits. <laughs> 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 uh, but but it's a disappointing interview. He comes. He comes over as it, it's 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 sad read because you know, especially for, like for me, as a huge fan of those records. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it was a really sad read. Jasper, you got anything for us?
3: Yeah, I do. A couple of things. First, I'll just mention, I won't quote from, but Do the Halsden Shuffle by Lloyd Bradley in the Evening Standard in February 2001 is a really interesting report on the Halsden music scene at that time when there was a documentary made about Halsden. And it, that he just speaks to a bunch of people in that scene, and that's, that's fun. So I just wanted to mention that in passing. But then Amy Linden interviews Ludacris January 2005 for XXL On record, Ludacris is impressive. His nimble, metaphor-rich rhymes roll off his tongue like liquid silver and his witty wordplay has made him a cameo king. But away from the mic? Different story. Ludacris is thoughtful. He is well-spoken. He is nice. All great qualities for a husband. Unfortunately, interviews taking place in conference rooms require the sort of artist more likely to blurt out something outrageous, irreverent, and maybe even, yes, controversial to compensate for the static sterility of the surroundings. Ludacris is not that sort of artist or rather <laughs> perhaps more to the point chris bridges is not that sort of guy and it's a, it's very funny cuz amy linden you can tell in the course of the interview is just left kind of cold by this guy who you know talks the talk on his records but in person is seems a bit harmless really to be <laughs> to be rapping about the things he's rapping about so it's just a fun one on that On that side. And then lastly, the Bad Plus, interviewed by Jeffrey Himes in Downbeat magazine. And they're really interesting. They're a jazz trio, but they're talking about not wanting to be, you know, the the Ethan Iverson trio or the Reed Anderson quartet, those are the band members' names. They want to be a, a band. Anderson's junior high school pal King still had one foot in the rock and roll world and he suggested the three of them should be in a leaderless group with a band name like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Weather Report. When they formed the Bad Plus in 2000, Anderson was no longer playing in Iverson's band and Iverson was no longer playing in Anderson's band. They all owned the band and that made all the difference in the world. They talk about that and Iverson says that uh, it's inconceivable to make a trio record without all the names on the cover. It's hard to see me ever putting out another Ethan Iverson record. That shit is so 20th century, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful.
1: I just want, want to say one last thing, and that is, you know, I'm 72 now, and everything that I've learned in life has led me to a point where, you know, I'm about to do something uh, really amazing. I, I've started a new business in cryptocurrency, and, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about <laughs> right to do man. something. And, and the, the creativity that I learned as a writer and uh, being in the music business has really helped me think in a creative way that I don't think would have been possible had I gone a different path so i'm happy with the the way my life has gone i've been able to do all the things that i set out to do and you know have one more act and uh, you know i'm getting ready to do it and i really appreciate you guys Giving me an opportunity to document my existence in this manner, because uh, it'll be here forever now that it's on this forum.
2: And <laughs> we I, I so. have to
1: thank uh, thank Pink Floyd and Herbie Hancock for opening up my head to all the possibilities. Those are the two bookmarks in in my life and my uh, musical and personal evolution. So. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been
3: fantastic yeah. having you on the show. It's been it really, really has been
0: yeah. great. We'll have to do another episode just about Pink Floyd and Herbie Hancock. Oh, yeah. with you. <laughs> Anytime. But honestly, it's been, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you. So to all our listeners, do visit Rocksback Pages, where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix, the aforementioned, to Kate Bush, Kurt Cobain, and more check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP and if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And on that note, uh, we should be back in two weeks with Richard Grable, who was NME's New York correspondent and one of the very first writers on the hip hop scene you alluded to earlier, Vernon. So there'll be more New York, more hip hop and more NME. So until then, Goodbye from all of us.
3: Bye. Bye. (laughs) That concludes episode 159 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Vernon Gibbs. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.